Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, did we get a glimpse of the Premier's strategy to win the next election? Doug Ford targets the Ontario Liberal Party at a weekend convention in Niagara Falls. A report released by the Future Majority states that social issues are going to be the key for voters under 35 in the upcoming elections. And Tech Resources has withdrawn its request for approval to build a massive oil sands project in northern Alberta, saying it's due to climate change debate. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario Progressive Conservatives held a uh, what they call a policy convention in Niagara Falls uh, over the weekend. And, uh, well, we got a bit of a glimpse, I guess, as to how uh, Premier Doug Ford is going to be planning his strategy for the uh, election. I was going to say upcoming election, but it's really still two years away, 2022. But it was a very much of a, of a, a, a campaign speech that Ford gave to the faithful in Niagara Falls, uh, somewhat oblivious to some of the facts that are going on, like the protests that were outside there, considering a number of different things that uh, a lot of people in Ontario uh, seem to have some concerns with. But uh, it certainly did fire up the troops. So is is this the new normal now? Are we in campaign mode all of the time? And uh, you know, it's it's just remarkable to see the impact that this is having on, on political parties and on politics, too. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brenner, retired journalist who covered Queen's Park for many years with the Toronto Star. And he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to give us his read on this. Badger, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good to see you. How are you, Bill? How are you doing? I'm doing well. Right off the bat, i got to ask you, I'm just looking at some of the reports from some of our media colleagues over the weekend that were down in Niagara Falls covering this. Uh, and you've done hundreds of these things over the years, of course. Uh, have you ever seen a situation before where they didn't allow the media into this thing, except uh, w- in prescribed areas at prescribed times? Uh, I'm glad you asked me that, because I was thinking about that over the weekend. And, and as you know, I covered my carers, and yeah. and people have feelings one way or the other about my... But I'll tell you, not once was I ever barred from an event like that. I roamed the halls. You know, there were certain sessions that, you know, they didn't want reporters into. Sure, yeah, fine. sure. Okay, fine. But I roamed the halls, talked to people. People came up to me to shoot the golf. You know, it was not like this at all. I think I think that decision to bar the uh, bar the journalists was just was not very bright, quite frankly. I am, and for those that are not aware, basically, uh, they were not allowed in unless there were certain prescribed areas at prescribed times. In other words, they were allowed in to listen to Doug Ford's speech. In other words, everything they thought the media should see because it was going to be positive. They, that, they, they were okay with that. but And I've covered a number of these things, too. I can remember covering the leadership convention down at the convention center a few years ago, the one that ultimately uh, picked Ernie Eves. And and I had free course to go all over and talk to the delegates, talk to the, the people that were running for office and everything. It just It's a different mindset now. That was the one at the Metro Convention Center. Yeah, that's right, yeah. As, as we were way down the bowels of that place, I remember that. Yeah. Well, actually, we were, I was doing CH Talk Live at the time, and we actually did our show from there, and we just kind of wandered around with, you know, the roving mic well, and talked to a lot of the delegates. There was no restriction about where I could go, except, like I say, for a few sessions. Uh, and, uh, you know, and if Mike was Harris walking down the hall, I'd stop and shoot the guff with him and ask him questions about whatever. But uh, <clears throat> I, I just think... And that whole thing with uh, 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 Mike Crawley from CBC, where that big galoot that the security guy stood in front of him and and, and saying he couldn't uh, he couldn't do his stand up outside the building because it was private property. Not only that, he told him to leave. Yeah, and uh, and and Mike rightly so uh, kept his cool and, and kept reporting and and uh, it was I mean 
whether that was prescribed by the conservatives or not, it was just such a bad image of a government that promised to be tra- open and transparent. Well, yeah, we can get into that, and, and we will in a couple of minutes, about being the antithesis of, of what they'd said they were going to be. Uh, but it, I, I get the idea that just about any political party, really, you know, they want to control the message, and I can see that. But this is kind of taking it to the extreme, isn't it? Well, I think it is. I just, it isn't necessary. Not, uh, you know, given, you know, you know, going way back, you know, you know when I... When I covered Bill Davis, or you know, or I, I covered Peterson, and and Ray, and and Mike Harris, and 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 you know, and and the liberals, McGinty, uh, I was I was never ever treated like that. They used to used to really give uh, reporters a once over. I know at the conservative party uh, sessions like this, where they would you know check out your credentials now, but. I I never had a problem getting in, it and just, I was never told I'd have to stand outside in the sidewalk. It it just sends a message, and you got to wonder. I mean, if if we're looking at this this policy convention as kind of a precursor to the the, the way the campaign's going to run in twenty twenty two, there's going to be some problems. Oh, I well, I would I would say uh, that I don't think the campaigning ever stopped for the conservatives i mean if they've been in that campaign mode and i think some you know to you know to say that you know that this is something new yeah they they took a bit of a, a sojourn from it but the point is that it his the premier's tact has always been basically you know campaigning and and that stump speech that he, he gives basically wherever he goes so this is just more of the same as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and, and there's always going to be a little hyperbole doing some of these things, isn't it? I mean, he's singing to the choir here. I mean, these are the party faithful. So, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, this is this is the new normal when it comes to rallies, I suppose. And he's, he's boasting about the economy and how great they've done and all these promises. And uh, somewhat oblivious, I guess, to a lot of the concerns that people have raised here, like the, like the teachers that were outside there. I mean, every union right now is without a contract and doing one-day strikes. I didn't mention that. He didn't mention that hydro rates are going up in spite of the fact that he said he was going to knock them down by 20%. And and there's a long list of things like this. I mean, it's it's maybe that's why they didn't want the media in there, because, uh, you know, th- 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 that would have been a reality check. I and mean, I guess they didn't really want to hear that. Well, they, I think one of the reasons they didn't want the media in there, because the media would start asking questions about many things. Yep. The strikes, the goof up with the license plate, and, uh, you know, and... The list goes on and on. I, I think I think they just feel a bit besieged, um, you know, through no fault. I mean, through every bit of fault of their own, they didn't want they didn't want to answer questions about the more controversial things that are going on right now. And you, you can say, well, geez, you know, maybe this is a time for them to take a break. But again, they promised that they were going to be different than the rest. And in people, well, they certainly are. <laughs> yeah, well, people might say that. You know, I mean, it, you look at it and say, okay, you say he's going to, you know, the campaign is on. Again, I, I don't think it ever really stopped, but the point is that that's the way politics, you know, are right now. It just, they, it never seems to really stop. And, just, you know, you go around the controversies that, pro, you know, that uh, pop up every now and again. 
but they, they're trying to get their message out that, you know, we're running a stable government, despite what you might have read, and that the economy's great and everything's wonderful. Don't pay attention to those license plates. Don't pay attention to the, the teacher strike and, and so on and so forth. The other element to this that I find interesting, though, and you, and you relate this back to your experience. You used the, uh, had the example of Mike Harris just a couple of minutes ago. and In the, the years I've been covering uh, politics as well, uh, whoever the premier was, and, and you know, go back to the Harris days, and, and Mike Harris used to come into the studio on a pretty regular basis, uh, or Bob Ray before that, or Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne, and, and like them or love them or hate them, whatever you want to do, they were always accessible, and they always did, as you did many times, meet that media scrum right outside the legislature after a controversial thing. And Harris was always there. You may not like the answer he gave, but he didn't shy away from any questions. No, he didn't. Doug he didn't, Ford. He didn't, Doug he Ford didn't doesn't run down say, what we used oh. to call Coward's Alley at <laughs> Queens Park. Uh, yeah, although that's a little inside baseball stuff. But I mean, I, I, you talk to some of the guys like you that have covered this. You and Randy Rath and a bunch of others that have been there forever. Uh, and and you know the ins and outs, and you know the hiding places, don't you? Oh yeah. Where they think they could get away, where we were waiting for them, and then they walked out the door. So. <laughs> but they would always be there, and he was always going to be accountable. Ford does not do that very. First of all, he's not a question period very often, uh, and he t- tends to shy away from that. It's it's not his strength, is it, to, to answer questions off the cuff? It isn't, and and that's that's fine. I mean, not you know, not everybody's built for that. But you know, goodness me. Uh, you know, he's been on there a few years now, and he's in, in you know, particularly in, in uh, council in Toronto and, and now it, as premier. The point is, you, 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 have to, you have to start stepping up and, and being premier-like. And I, I don't think he's quite reached that. I'm not saying he won't, but I, I don't think he's quite got it yet. But it's part of the job, isn't it? Oh, Yeah. I mean, the way the way they deliver the messages now is the same way he delivered them during the campaign a couple of years ago now. It's it's a speech, uh, you know, in front of his faithful and with a little slogan on the on the dais usually, you know, for the people or whatever it might be. Uh, and then he's gone. Uh, you know, it's, in other words, get that out of here. I don't want to do questions and answers right now because he's not really fast on his feet when it comes to policy issues like that. Uh, but you got to wonder. I mean, at some point, you've you've, you've got to develop that skill, or at least work on it. I mean, not everybody's great at it, but it it is part of the job. Well, no, you know, we, 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 there's been you know uh, opposition leaders and federally and provincially that never did get it, and and there's been you know premiers that were far better at it than than others. But you, you, you've got to try, and I'm not saying he isn't trying. I don't know what's happening in, in the background there. But boy, they, they really have to change the change the channel here and change the tone, because there has been a lot of, in my words, goof ups in in the last you know couple of years, and and that's got to change. You you can you can tell the world that you know everything's hunky dory. But if it, you know if they you know read the headlines and see that maybe that's not the case, so you they've really just got to start getting a handle on what's going on. That's my my impression. Of well, it. and listen, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I mean, we just talked about a few of them here. You know, obviously the education uh, fiasco as it stands right now, uh, the autism funding still hasn't rolled out. That penny hasn't gone outside, uh, and uh, parents are getting upset about that. 
uh, this idea, this pledge to end uh, what they called, uh, you know, hallway health care. The situation's worse than it was. The deficit is the biggest it's ever been, even bigger than Kathleen wins. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And I'm not going to lay it all at Doug Ford's feet. Uh, but he is the boss, and, and ultimately he's got to be responsible for it, and he doesn't seem to want to accept that responsibility. Yeah, we, we can't, you know, we can't, like you say, lay everything at, at his feet. But you knew what the situation was when you ran for the job. So you you, you either do it or you, you pass a mantle on to somebody else. But, you know, uh, Doug Ford has really got to, I think, buckle down and, and start being a little more premier-like and, and, convincing, and convincing the public that, you know, better days are ahead. And that's what he just got. Every premier has to make feel people feel that things are, you know, you know are pretty good now, but I'll tell you they're going to be even better later. And you've got to convince them. He also spent a fair bit of time taking shots at the Liberals, which I thought was rather interesting. I mean, this is a party that doesn't even have party status right now in the legislature. They were decimated in the last election, down to a handful of members now. Uh, but he clearly looks at them as, as the the opposition. I mean, I understand that the NDP are the official opposition here, but when they get into election mode, I think he's 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 much more concerned about the Liberals than he is the NDP. Well, I, no, I think, and, and rightly so, because they, I, they've had the... They had, uh, the room to grow, obviously, and with the new, you know, they'll pick a new leader uh, next month, and that, Pro- probably course, Del Duca. Yeah, yeah, probably Del Duca. But uh, you know, geez, he kind of—they've got their own problems. Just as an aside, I mean, he oh, yeah. doesn't even have a, a seat in the house, and we know what that you know with Singh, what how that how that can work against you, and so that you know, but even even despite all that. That's probably the folks that they should be worried about because they can, the, the liberals can still, despite being, you know, a, a, the van party, that they can still, when it comes down to it, muster a pretty good fight. And that's what the, and that's what the conservatives have to, have to worry about. And they have to worry about getting so low in the polls or, you know, or fumbling the ball so many times. That people that people just say, you know, next, you know, bring somebody in here that we think you know knows what they're doing. He's not there yet, but they've got to get a handle on on these problems, and they got they've got to look they've got to look like a government and not not somebody that just arrived yesterday. And and they're making the mistakes that you expect a new government to make right off the the hop. But they've been in a while, so yeah. it's 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 time to start to acting like a government. Well, it's uh, past the halfway point, yeah, and you know, ready for the third and fourth quarters here. And uh, you know, the, the honeymoon period's over. I mean, these guys have got to, I think, you know, look at the realities of some of the things going on. But boy, if uh, it's it's going to shape up to be quite the next uh, eighteen months or so before they 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 really kick into the full election. And we'll talk much more about this, I guess, in the well, uh, the well, days and weeks ahead. Bring in David Ayer to take over. <laughs> yeah, you send him in to be the leader. You know, <laughs> that, that guy. Uh, Badger, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, Bill, take it. Richard Brennan, of course, who uh, covered Queen's Park for many, many years and uh, had media scrums with a lot of the premiers. And, uh, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't matter. They were always there and they were always accountable.
because that kind of goes with the job, doesn't it? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, a report from a group called Future Majority says that nearly one in three voters say that they'd vote for any political party, but it depends on where they stand on some of the key issues, especially when it comes to social issues. Uh, now, this is rather interesting. As we mentioned, there's a presidential election uh, coming up in November in the United States. And uh, uh, always you know, when we have elections, and this was something we talked about at great length in, in the uh, our federal election last October as well, is the youth vote, quote-unquote, and, and where they might go and who they might support. So this is an interesting read and some interesting stats here. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Aaron McLean-Purden, who is a founding member and field director with Future Majority. Uh, Aaron, thank you for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Yeah, hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is fascinating stuff because, I mean, we're, we're always concerned about this. And you know, for those of us that are following, for instance, the uh, the, the primaries down in the States and, and the rise of Bernie Sanders, uh, they, every time there's that discussion and every time we start talking about what he seems to be doing and generating support, uh, the youth vote comes into the discussion. It's a huge part of what's going to be happening in that election. Mm-hmm. Um, so the youth vote in Canada is huge, right? Millennials and Gen Z were the largest voting block, and that's why Future Majority was really interested to see what were some of the deal breakers uh, for this largest voting block. So um, a deal breaker is just that thing that you can't overlook in a potential date or, it turns out, a politician. So if I were to go on a date with someone, and I like them a lot, but at the end of the date, that person didn't tip the server and I know how hard servers hustle, um, I would be like, I cannot go on another date with that. Not tipping this, a server is a deal breaker. So similarly, uh, in the political arena, there are some things young voters just can't overlook. Such as? Yeah, totally. So we surveyed over a thousand young people from Saskatchewan all the way to PEI, and we found that the major deal breakers for millennials and Gen Z uh, is not reducing carbon emissions, um, reducing support for health care and education, and taking a stance against a women's right to choose. All important issues, and, and you're singing from the same song sheet as an awful lot of Canadians, I would hope. hope I'd like to think the majority of Canadians. Uh, but but as you go through this and as, as you do that evaluation, though, Aaron, uh, how, do you, how do you determine uh, who's on the right side, who's on the wrong side? Is it a black and white issue for you? So we were really just interested on what issues uh, would cause a political party or a politician to get stood up at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are things that, you know, for me personally, it's like I can look at a politician and be like, oh, this is great. I like that, like that and the other. But if they're a flat earther, it's like, no, no matter what they stand for, there are some things that just really go against, um, you know, my values or what have you. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we were really interested to see if those existed for millennials and Gen Zs, uh, and it turns out they do. But you guys, I get the sense in talking to a number of groups, including like student associations who are heavily involved in, in federal politics and other political levels now too, uh, that they drill down a little bit more. It's just, you know, because every political party is going to say, oh, Aaron, don't worry, yeah, we've got a climate p- plan, don't worry. But, yeah, okay, but you read it over and you say, nah, no, nah, nah, this just this isn't working. So you do the half of the, that evaluation. You do your homework on that before you make that decision, don't you? Mm, totally. Uh, and it 
you know, it's really important that all these political parties, um, yeah, start to get on side uh, with issues like climate change and health care and a women's right to choose. I mean, because um, and right now is a really important time, right? Uh, the Ontario Liberals are electing a new leader. Uh, the federal conservatives are electing a new leader. And so it's a really important time for uh, the delegates and the party members who will be voting for leaders to start to think about, okay, are, am I going to elect a leader who uh, can get the votes of young people? Because the votes of young people, because young people have the most amount of votes, more votes than Gen Xers, more votes than baby boomers, more votes than the silent generation. So um, it's obviously going to be a, a pretty big topic, or it, it ought to be, because uh, the political livelihoods of these leaders and these parties are, are on the line. Well, and we saw that, you know, in the last presidential election. They had the midterm elections, of course, about a year and a half or so ago, uh, and we saw some change there. Uh, but I, I read a statistic over the weekend that suggested that, you know, when they have this election this year in the United States, which is only two years later, uh, there's over a million new voters. I mean, and that's that demographic that we're talking about, that we're not eligible to vote, that are eligible to vote. So uh, this is not just a large constituency. This is a growing constituency. Totally, totally. And what's really interesting uh, is that, uh, at least in Canada, from, from our report, we found that, that young people are politically polyamorous. Uh, have you ever heard that a penguin mates for life? Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out uh, young people, Gen Z and millennials, uh, they don't tie themselves down to a political party for life. Uh, so we found out that, you know, like almost a third of our respondents would consider voting for any of the parties. Um, Did that surprise so it's, you? It's really interesting. Did that surprise you that they're, they're, they're that open-minded about it? Uh, it? From talking to thousands of young people, quite frankly, it didn't. Uh, young people really care about specific issues because they are dramatically affected by them right now or will be in the future. Climate change, for example. You look at what's happening in Australia, that's terrifying. And to think that that could happen at home, um, yeah, is, is, is even more so. And so, yeah, any political party that's willing to do the heavy lifting and hard work of ensuring that we live in a world without a climate crisis, uh, it, young people are willing to put their votes behind that. So who can, whoever can offer the best um, climate plan, um, I, I really believe young voters will flock to. Now, if I were to stop 10 people in downtown today and say, you know, that, that generation that you and I are just talking about right now, what political party do you think they support? I would I would venture to say probably seven or eight out of those 10 would say, oh, they're probably uh, NDPers, you know. Uh, but th there's a story behind that. And first of all, I'm not so sure that's the case based on what you're saying. Not necessarily. The, the people are a lot more open-minded about that. But is it because that particular party tends to talk about these issues more than maybe the other two do? Well, it's it's really important that all these political parties uh, start to focus on the problems affecting young people and start to reflect their values and priorities. Um, because a lot of votes on the line, I suspect that that will happen. Uh, and that's also why Future Majority is working so hard um, to make sure that the values and priorities of young people are being listened to by politicians. Well, that's starting to happen, though, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned climate change as, as an example, and I think it's a solid example. When you look at what happened last October in our last federal election, Aaron, 
you know, invariably pop, people talk about health care and the economy and they want a job, etc. Those are all important things, of course, we know. And they, they're the ones that always seem to be right at the top of, of, of the priority list of all the political parties when they're out there trying to get votes from us. But it was amazing to notice how high... Uh, climate change had climbed up in that ladder. It was one of the top three or four priorities for most people in this election, and that's unusual. Maybe it's, I hope it's the new normal, but it never was that way before. Mm. Yeah, and talking to thousands of young people across this country, it's it's right up there, and it is connected to you know the rising cost of living. It is connected. It is connected to many other issues as well, um, but. There still is daylight between the all the parties' talking points and the political reality uh, between the actual policy being um, implemented, and so we still need to see uh, much more action on this issue. And uh, I firmly believe that young voters are really going to be a huge part of making that happen. With the purpose, I guess, the stated purpose of actually trying to drive the agenda of of trying to prioritize like yeah. climate, yeah. For sure, and, and the the other issues that you've talked about, obviously women's rights and and, and a number of other things. Do you feel? Obviously, you've done some research on this, and and you're in tune with what's going on and what's being proposed. Uh, are you concerned that that some of the issues that you and and this demographic find uh, to be priorities and find to be important are being threatened right now by some of the other political heads that that seem to be making the policy decisions on this stuff? Hmm. Well. You know, uh, maybe at the, their own risk. Um, like I said, young young people are the largest voting block, and um, the most amount of votes wins elections. So it's uh, yeah, I think that because young people are so um, there's so much solidarity around these big issues like um, our healthcare system and uh, our post-secondary education system and climate change and a woman's right to choose that um, it, yeah, will become politically untenable to have, um, yeah, to, the, to not be on side with young people on this stuff. But, but the voices are becoming louder now. And, and you, you mentioned about post-secondary education. And, of course, we've got an Ontario government here that uh, that just made some, some what they call changes to the system, uh, I, I think to the detriment of, of students. Uh, because they've cut back on funding for universities, which uh, is going to have a huge impact on, first of all, the number of students that are going to be allowed in uh, to universities in the future, uh, and, and and it's a concern. You know, they 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 don't seem to listen uh, because the strongest voice of discontent when these policies were announced came from that demographic themselves that were saying, "Wait just a second, this is going to have a negative impact on us." And uh, as I talked to a number of student associations when that was made, Aaron, and I'm sure you heard from the same sorts of people as well. They said, why weren't we consulted? I mean, we're the ones that are impacted by this. We want a voice. And uh, uh, you guys aren't going away, are you? You're going to stand right into this fight until you actually are heard, and, and not only heard, but listened to. Mm, yeah, and the question of post-secondary funding is, is close to my heart. Um, you know, I really relied on um, support um, in order to attend University and university introduced me to some of the most important ideas and people in my life. And so, yeah, that, that is, um, I really see the value in ensuring that, um, yeah, post-secondary education is properly funded and it's accessible. Accessibility is super important. And I hear this from, from tons of young people. Um, so 
I, yeah, I suspect that is going to continue to be a really important issue for young people uh, and that they will mobilize around it. Well, when it comes to things like student debt and paying off student debt and, and, and that sort of thing, I mean, this is this is going to have a real impact on everybody's life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, students, the student debt crisis uh, is real. Um, there's a really great uh, report out um, from Generation Squeeze uh, that was looking at um, income for millennials and Gen Zs compared to our parents' generation, the boomers. We make... Uh, around the same or less accounting for inflation, but we also are more highly educated and as a result have accumulated a lot more student debt. Uh, and so, you know, tack on rising house prices, it's, it's really hard um, to, to, to make a living and, and get, yeah. To, so um, the student debt crisis is a, is a big deal. It's a generational issue and it's, it's not going away. I got. I don't know what your political affiliation is, and I'm not going to pry into that. But I'm interested in, in the stat here uh, that came out from your report. Uh, you talked about what political party uh, might best attract this this generation that we're talking about, Aaron. Eighty eight percent said they would probably uh, consider voting for the NDP. Eighty seven percent said they'd go to Liberal. Seventy nine percent Green Party, and the Conservatives forty seven percent. Uh, what do you read into that? I mean, the, my first takeaway from that is that the, the conservatives have got some work to do to try to appeal to that demographic. Yeah, when I saw those numbers, I thought it's open season. Uh, any one of these parties uh, can grab the votes uh, of young people or can can get their votes. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's... Uh, it's going to be really exciting to see what happens in the uh, up- upcoming provincial and federal elections. But that, uh, yeah, no one party has a monopoly on young people's votes and that it's really up to the parties now to decide um, how much they value um, young people and how willing they will be to prioritize young people's priorities. Well, when we uh, you know did the analysis, the post-election analysis after uh, the Liberals ended up with a major- minority government, rather, uh, and and a lot of people that had anticipated the conservatives winning, uh, the obvious question is what went wrong with the conservatives and the things that you have talked about in this report and that this demographic have said are their priorities, seem to be uh, the Achilles heel for the conservatives. They did not like their 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 climate change policy. They did not like uh, their policy towards uh, a woman's right to choose. Uh, remember, there was some talk about you know reliving the abortion debate, and I don't think anybody outside of that party anyway wanted to see that sort of thing happen. So they they didn't check those boxes, and they paid a price for it. Hmm. Yeah, and getting back to to my political affiliation, I mean, we're a nonpartisan group. Yeah. Uh, we don't adore endorse or oppose any one party. And we firmly believe that um, young people's votes are uh, there for the taking. Um, they're waiting for a, for, ch- for a champion, um, waiting for someone to represent them and to reflect uh, their values. Uh, it's a great study and uh, very worthwhile and very, uh, very eye-opening as to exactly what could be happening politically here in the next little while. Aaron, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Great talking with you too, Bill. Thanks again. Okay, Aaron McLean Purden, of course, uh, who is uh, the director of Future Majority, uh, and that's a, an interesting read. And that is going to be the key uh, for an awful lot of people that are seeking political office and seeking power uh, in government uh, to attract that demographic and that generation who are very, very much involved in politics and just looking for somebody. If I can grab a line from uh, from uh, Max Kerman in the Arkells, they're looking for the people's champ, uh, and it ain't you, not yet, anyway. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Vancouver-based Tech Resources has withdrawn its application to build a massive oil sands project in northern Alberta, uh, citing what they say the ongoing debate over climate policy in Canada, uh, which ties in the uh, first thing we talked about this morning, of course, is the uh, the barricades. Uh, not just the one that's going on, of course, up near Belleville, but a couple of other ones as well that essentially have tied up the economy. And th- these things are all tied together in so many different ways. I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, of course, business professor at the Good School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. Good to have you on the show today. Glad to be here, Bill. Got a lot of stuff on our plate here. Let's let's yeah. uh, let's start uh, with the decision. Uh, some say a surprise decision by Tech uh, to withdraw their application, uh, which uh, I, I suppose was somewhat surprising, simply because we were anticipating the federal government uh, giving you a thumbs up or thumbs down. They're not going to get the chance to do that now. Well, uh, I'm going to say yes to all of that, although one never knows. You know, the longer I've been in this world, never say never again. Yeah. Two, two things happened on Sunday that make no sense to me. The first one was that one of the roadblocks, uh, hurdles, if you will, for this tech project, were First Nations in Alberta. Two groups had been saying that to Premier Kenny, et cetera, they had not consulted with them, and they were opposed to the project, and this was giving the federal government a lot of pause. Oh, do we want to approve another project when some of the First Nations people aren't on board? But Sunday morning, an announcement of Alberta, the two First Nations groups who were opposed to it had switched. And now they were fine with it. That they had their concerns had been heard and justified, and da 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 da. They were ready, and they said, "We join Alberta in encouraging the federal government to approve this." And so, I thought likely Tuesday, Wednesday of this week, we'd hear the federal government saying, "Okay, well now that everybody's on board, even though it took eight nine years, off we go." Uh, and then we had the other funny news out of Tech itself saying, "Well, we've now decided to withdraw the project." And that, oddly enough, again, doesn't make much sense to me. They've spent nearly a billion dollars towards the $20 billion project. Why would they withdraw this at this point? Well, let's speculate. <laughs> uh, is it because they figured they were going to get a thumbs down from the federal government on this and they just wanted to jump the, the queue and say, forget about it? Well, uh, you, you, you can't fire me. We quit. Yeah, well, I'm I'm wondering a couple of things. So uh, here's what's going through my mind. First, sometimes it's easy to to blame somebody else for a problem that you've got internally. And what do I mean by that? Not that there's anything problematic with tech itself, but the price of oil remains soft. We have been floating closer to fifty dollars a barrel, and this project really makes sense over the long term. Oil had to be sixty dollars a barrel or higher. If oil wasn't there, then I wondered why you might go through with this project. So. This may have been part of their reticence. And then the other concern they might have is really what we're seeing play out with the coastal gas link pipeline. And remember, it's the coastal gas link, not the Trans Mountain pipeline, but I worry we may see, may see it play out there, that even if you get the federal approval, the minute you start trying to put shovels in the ground, or in this case build a pipeline, other groups come out of the woodwork, and then they do these blockades. And the government, um, for good or bad, and I, I understand why they have taken the approach they have, but the appearance to the business community is, well, I don't think you're really serious about business investment. If you let this go on, if you cripple your economy, then what does a yes from the federal government really mean? And so what I think they're trying to say is we have lost confidence in you. Even a yes from the federal government, is it really a yes, or are we going to be tied up with more of this stuff going forward? Now, having said that to you, Bill, why I'm not sure we should say no to this project or never to this project is, you know, I suspect if I'm the federal government 
urged by the Alberta government, I'm calling up the tech president at some point today and saying, are you sure? Is there anything I can do? You might remember that with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, Kinder Morgan, the company behind that, said, oh, we give up. We're pulling the plug. And the next thing we heard, the federal government bought the pipeline because they wanted this thing to go forward. I'm not saying for a moment that the federal government's about to buy Tech Cominco in any of this kind of way, shape, or form. But, you know, there could be sweeteners, inducements that gets Tech to rethink this, especially now that we are so close to having all the approvals lined up. But is it, is it inevitable in this time uh, where there's a, a, a stronger focus on climate change and, and green policy and green energy policies, Narvin, that, that these sorts of protests, not necessarily blockades, but some sorts of protests are almost inevitable? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, there is nothing, I, I think, that, uh, and, and maybe I'll even say it this way, Bill. In Canada, I give ourselves great, great pat on the back. I was just in the United States for a week, and no one in the United States seems to have any kind of a backbone when it comes to business issues. They, everyone just kind of rolls over and says, well, if business wants it, let's give it to them. So I, I give our country great credit that we do soul search and grind through this and really think, well, now what are the consequences of these decisions? But on the other hand, I don't think we can let all of this grind the wheel of economy to an absolute halt. Uh, every time I take a breath on this planet, just as an individual human being, I change the world around me. There's nothing the humans can do to stop that. So the question always is a balancing act. What do we get? What are the benefits we get? What are the costs? What can we do to mitigate this? And then we have to make a decision on that front. It, it is hard, I think, today. And what tech is trying to bring forward is how do we strike this balancing act between investment in projects, inevitably some projects that are going to contribute some carbon. What is the carbon strategy? Are we truly trying to, to shut down the oil industry? What, what is government policy? And I don't blame them for saying they are confused about it. And yet, I, I think it's good that we're having this debate. In the United States, there wouldn't be a debate like this. If, if tech wanted to put $20 million into a fracking project in Kansas, they'd put $20 billion into it. Native groups wouldn't have anything to say. There's no discussion about First Nations rights. There's no discussion around the environment. Business always wins. I'm not sure that's the right environment. So I do like the fact that we are trying to find the balancing point. But I guess what, what tech is saying, we're not prepared to take a risk until you make it clear what that balancing point really is. Well, I mean, if they're looking for a clear path here without any kind of pushback, they're, they're <laughs> kind of dreaming in technicolor, aren't they? <laughs> well, yes. And, and tech did say in their letter, I read through the letter that the president wrote, and by the way, a very well-crafted letter. I wish Donald Trump would read that or hire that communications friend. We'd get a lot more sense out of him. But it's a very well-crafted letter. And they said, we weren't, we weren't afraid to take on some opposition. It's just that we feel the path ahead is too foggy. And I think what they're saying here is that, you know, we, we can meet uh, concerns. If you have environmental concerns, we can meet them. We can address them. But if we start to build it and then people start putting up blockades or they start doing other kinds of things, look, we, we just don't have the patience for this. It's already taken, this project was first proposed in 2011. This is 2020. It's taken nine years, a billion dollars already spent, and they're saying, uh, maybe we better walk away from it. That's not really a good signal to be sending to any level of government from the business community that says we're, we aren't prepared to make that kind of investment. We think, I haven't quite tallied it to the bottom line, but nearly $100 billion worth of uh, energy projects are being considered for Alberta, this being the biggest, at $20 billion of that $100 billion. If they walk away, well, then what else is that going to mean for the Alberta economy? 
Well, and, and that's when the politics gets into this. And, you know, you've already got Premier Kenny going after the prime minister and saying it's all your fault, and Premier Moe in Saskatchewan saying the same thing. Yep. Uh, and that's, that, that's the politics of it. But as you've just explained, it's a little more complex than that. Uh, and, and, but it's still, I, I would imagine, an economic kick in the pants to Alberta because, I mean, you know, Kenny, ever since he got elected, has been complaining about the fact that he feels Ottawa has abandoned him. Uh, if, if the prime minister or if the government or if the police or whomever had done something to, to try to tear these blockades down the day that they were first constructed, uh, is that the right way to go? Is that going to be a sign of confidence in projects like this? Because uh, as we've already found out, I mean, they've, they've done what they can about the Belleville blockade here. And now uh, we're getting reporting from some of our global news sources here that they're potentially setting up another blockade outside of Toronto on one of the rail lines. So this is, uh, is kind of like whack-a-mole. As soon as you try to yeah. fix one here, there's another one over here to do. Well, uh, if we switch over for just half a second of these blockades, this has been my concern from the beginning. CN is not in, involved in this, or even CP, the two major train companies in this country, are not involved in this. Nobody has any grievance with them, but they have been the the vehicle, if you will, that people who are opposed are using to express their concerns. I feel very much for CN and CP. They're saying, well, what, what do you want us to do? They've gone to court. They've got an injunction says this is an illegal strike, you're trespassing on the train tracks, you, you need to go. Uh, and, and protesters, yeah, I'll just burn that, rip that up, I, I'm not recognizing that. That's lawlessness. And, and I don't care who you are, if, if there are rules, to, there are, there's a way to play the game, there are rules to be followed, and, and this is wrong. But the Prime Minister, and for that matter, even the OPP said, well, before we try the heavy hand, let's, let's try to talk our way through this. And and that talk was would have been fine for 24 hours, 48, maybe even maybe even 72. But now what we've got is a situation where a, a blockade has lasted two and a half weeks. Yes, that one has been removed. But what that's turned the attention of the world to is, hey, you want to get something done in Canada? Just block a railway. So if you don't want to block CN, block a GO train or block a subway in Toronto. That'll get you excitement. And they're not going to do anything about it because they didn't do anything about it the first time. So we've actually sort of encouraged this whack-a-mole concept. And, if, again, if I'm a business, whether I'm CP or if I'm tech, I'm saying this is my government's response. Uh, I don't mind dealing with protesters. I don't mind dialogue. I don't even mind changing projects to accommodate people. But lawlessness in the face of this then what, what kind of infrastructure do we really have in this country? And what kind of a message does it send? I mean, you know, there are long-time consequences, and I think long-term consequences to what's going on here. Uh, as you mentioned, commerce was essentially shut down in this country for the longest time. Uh, but you're more concerned, and I think we should all be concerned, about investment. I mean, we've always talked about the fact that we want to find international investment here. Uh, and But at the same time, as you've mentioned to us many times, Marvin, those companies that may have a few shekels that they want to invest in some project here are looking for stability, and uh, we can't really offer that right now. No, no, we can't, Bill. But uh, I, again, I want to show you how complex this is. Let me bring it to a different kind of an issue. You know, in Hamilton last summer, was sometimes people called it the summer of hate in Hamilton, we had protesters gathering in front of City Hall. Some people, of course, supporting the, the gay community. Other people, of course, against, opposed that and opposed to abortion and other things. We do have a basic right in this country to allow people to protest, but at what point do you cross the line? You say, okay, there's protest, and then there's what you're doing, let's shut you down. 
in the case of Hamilton, there were a lot of people who wondered why the police weren't acting against what we'll call the evil people in these protests, the more closed-minded individuals, the people promoting something different. Why aren't you acting? And that's kind of what's going on here. The, The protesters who don't actually have any skin in the game. In other words, these are not the wet Suetan people. These are not the people whose land is being um, infiltrated by a pipeline. They are just friends of the wet Suetan. Why are you allowing them to do that? If I were to try to blockade, let's take an HSR line in Hamilton because I'm in support of, I don't know, a hospital or I'm in support of a university and I don't like the way they're being handled, what would you do to me? I think you'd move in pretty quickly and say, Marvin, this is not the right way to do your protest. Why are we letting this go on by these by these supporters? These are tough questions, and it does send a signal to a business community when you contrast it to our neighbor to the south who, who just wouldn't tolerate this even for a moment. Well, and we've got to be careful about the, some of the rhetoric here. I mean, you know, Andrew Shear's comments about this, you know, just being a bunch of uh, radicals uh, is not not really true. Uh, it, there are some Aboriginal people involved in some of these protests that have Absolutely. some very legitimate concerns. There are some environmentalists that uh, that have what they feel are legitimate concerns, and there's probably another group there that just love to stir up crap all the time, and they seem to show up at any protest anywhere. But uh, you can't lump them all together. Uh, and you, but the thing is. Oftentimes they don't seem to want to deal with this. I mean, you know, and and at what point do you say, okay, we've served this and we've addressed the needs? I mean, there were environmental concerns, there were concerns about about treaty rights, but you know, in in the case of of the tech project here and and the Alberta government, they thought they'd crossed all the T's and dotted the I's on that, and they had agreement from a number of the bands that yeah, go ahead. Matter of fact, they were looking forward to it because an awful lot of their people were going to get jobs out of this. Uh, and then all of a sudden this other group, this splinter group, comes along and says, no, we're not imposed. How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I, wish, I wish I had a good answer for you, Bill. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, if I was tech, this letter that I read yesterday, well-crafted letter, but that didn't get written in an hour yesterday afternoon on a Sunday. That letter was probably in process for most of the last week with tech thinking it's time to give up. I even think the letter was crafted before the response from the First Nations earlier on Sunday saying we've withdrawn our concerns, we're ready to support you. And that's why I think there's a possibility. I'm not sure what percentage I'd put on that possibility, but probably 50-50. The tech might be, especially if the government were to come in with some sweeteners and inducements, might be prepared to change their mind on this. But it does show you again how hard it is to figure out. Look, we spent nine years, we did this many consultations. Take the Trans Mountain Pipeline. 329 individual groups were consulted with. 320 have signed off on the project. Nine have not. Does that mean the project shouldn't go forward? Can the nine hold up? What if that nine got down to one? 328 say yes. One says no. Does the one get a veto? In a democracy, unfortunately, it does tend to be majority rule, not you know, minority win out. I, I don't know, and I think that's our challenge going forward. How can we be respectful? How can we obey the rules of law, air our concerns and grievances? But I feel what we're doing right now is we're allowing lawlessness with these protests, especially by people who have no direct skin in the game. If, if this were to continue, I could see it crippling our economy because these shutdowns, in fact, in the case of, of uh, Belleville, after the wet Suetan people themselves removed their blockade of a rail line and said, okay, we're ready to talk. 
when they went to the people in Belleville and said, well, I guess it's time for you to go. They said, no, no, we've got more grievances now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We can never make everybody happy. When, when does the, if your major grievance was them, it's gone now. Pull up your blockade. It's really hard to do business when this is going on. Well, and especially when you get people that have radical and, and, and entrenched positions. I mean, if some of those protesters just are philosophically opposed to the building of pipelines, uh, too bad. I mean, I, yeah, I get your point. You have your right to your opinion. But, you know, this is our economy, and, and for the time being, we still need to, to extract this stuff, and we still need to ship it to market. I mean, there are some people that don't think we should be driving automobiles even. I mean, so that's fine. But, you know, does that mean you stand in the middle of the road and say, okay, no automobile shall pass? I mean, there's there's got to be at some point, you know, a line that they've crossed and say, I'm sorry, uh, we respect that you, that's your opinion, but move aside. Yeah, and, and, and again, I don't mean to make this more complex. I'm afraid that's what I'm doing. But at the same time, I, I, I have that same concern. I consider myself an environmental friend for sure, and yet we also saw what happened. That oil doesn't stay in the ground. That oil is being extracted, and if we don't have a pipeline to put it in, we're going to put it in train cars and watch what happened in Saskatchewan. Two derailments, major fire. We remember Lac Megantic in Quebec. This, this oil is not staying in the ground. What we want to do then is find the most effective way and the least environmentally damaging way that we can move commerce forward. We have to find this balancing act. I'm not sure these protests uh, are helping, but now because we've allowed the first blockade to go, other people are saying, well, this is effective, let's blockade something else. Why not a bridge? Why not a tunnel? Why not the 401? At what point are we going to say, look, this is the wrong way to make a case, and I'm afraid the police are going to have to be more active for the next several months now because of letting this blockade get to where it got to. Well, and that's uh, the uh, I fear a lot of people I think have at this stage is uh, this is not the end. This is uh, this is you know could be the beginning, and who knows what's going to happen next. Uh, these things could be popping up all over the place, and it does have a significant impact on the economy as we've already seen. Uh, more to come on this, Marvin. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again today. We'll, we'll keep watching. You bet. Marvin Ryder, of course, at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. We have to do a quick break. We're going to keep an eye on uh, situations up around Belleville and uh, report any news as it becomes available. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.